Welcome back to the Old History Podcast, historians from around the internet. I said that backwards this time. I'm kidding. Uh, so, there is a little bit of news for Old History. Nothing between uh, me and Warren Doctor and East Tennessee History Society. Uh, I haven't really talked about much. You know, start of the year and he's busy with a lot of uh, CEO and president stuff, so I ain't really bothered him. You know, he'll, he talks to me on a regular basis, so something comes up, he'll let me know. And then I'll let you guys know on the next podcast or on Facebook. So I did go out today, Friday. I recorded this right after, but I went out Friday and there had been a cemetery over in Granger County, Tennessee. I'd been wanting to just go up there and see it because uh, basically I grew up in, in those woods and I know every square centimeter of what's exactly what's there. You know, every stone... You know, I know if that one's turned over, if that one's been kicked around, you know, whatever. So, it's a, called Ford Cemetery, and I went and videoed it, because I'd always want to go out there and see it, and oh my god, it was a mile and a half out there, uphill, literally uphill both ways, and then you had to make your own trail through the woods, and then walk down a steep mountain, and then you had you come to this ravine, you had to cross the ravine, and then you go up on this hill where there are no headstones. I was a little disappointed, but it's still cool to know that where I've been hunting for the last, you know, or exploring and hunting for the last 10, 15, 20 years, there's an old cemetery out there. And, and basically, uh, all that area, which some of you may know as Circle Park, was bought up by TVA in anticipation for the Cherokee Lake uh, a floodplain when they built Cherokee Dam in the 40s and I mean there's a, there's a whole thing I can get into about that so we won't really get into it but basically these people in particular were not in danger of having you know an underwater grave as is the case with quite a few cemeteries here I know of a few but they're not accessible but anyway they just left them they weren't exhumed as far as I know, they weren't exhumed. There's like, I think there's like 10 graves. But anyway, you guys can watch the video. It's 11 minutes long. A lot of cool stuff in that video. You, you gotta go watch it. You might find something interesting. Okay, so last weekend we ended the Revolutionary War. You know, they surrendered, at, the Brits surrendered at Yorktown. Well, what happened next? Well, there was a couple, there's still a few more months of fighting. You know, it took a little while for the news to reach, but... Still a little bit more fighting, but it was ended. Well, okay, well, America's a new nation. What what happens now? What do we do now? And so, instead of just... And I'm going to get into all the politics of this. It's really awesome to read about early American politics. I really like to read about politics. Of course, I keep modern politics completely cut out from what's going on. I don't want to talk about it. You know, old history doesn't align one way or the other. I'm not talking about it. So I'm not. I'm just going to take a quick break from the you know, the revolution because there is all kinds of stuff to talk about. Let me tell you about it. So Treaty of Paris, uh, revolution ended. Then you get into George Washington's presidency. You get into how we're going to be. A a Democrat or a constitutional republic, you get into 
Shays Rebellion, the Federalists, the Anti-Federalists, the Ratification project, uh, Process. You get into all kinds of stuff. Like a few of the things that happened with Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, the uh, third president. All kinds of stuff. And that's a whole series on its own that I do intend to cover. But one of the... You know, I do want to talk about the Articles of Confederation. Uh, I want to talk about the Bill of Rights and the, you know the Constitutional Conventions where you know they basically wanted to say, hey, we need a set of rules that every man for the next however many years, however many hundreds of years, is going to live by it. So they made the Constitution, right? Well, I want to get into that. Not today. I want to cover a few more... Uh, of of the wars and stuff that happened that really set a set a course for American history and one of those is not going to be a war it is going to be the Louisiana Purchase so America was a new nation right we're still just a baby we're still an infant not a whole lot to we really don't have a whole lot to walk with so you know so we had the original 13 colonies well Tennessee came along well it wasn't Tennessee until 1796, but the people start to settle in uh, Tennessee and Kentucky and then so on and so forth. Well, we needed to, we needed more land because all these places were getting too crowded up for our explore, you know, very exploratory ancestors. So the, the Louisiana Purchase comes into play because what took place on November 10th, 1803, and this is reading from history house, history.house.gov, which is from the House of Representatives. I don't know what's been deleted. I'm kidding. I shouldn't say that. Don't come get me. So Thomas Jefferson on uh, November 10th, 1803, approved and signed an act to pay France $11 million for the Louisiana Purchase. So just to put into perspective... 11 million dollars in 1803 right quick 11 million dollars in 1803 is worth right at around 271 million dollars in today's money so that was quite a bit of money for them to dish out you know right after the very expensive war and trying to fix all the damages that occurred during the war how did they dish this out where did it come from well that's that's a whole different story but anyway, to just get back onto the track of the Louisiana Purchase, there is a lot to cover about that. But we'll sum it up, you know, for all intents and purposes. Because then it gets into uh, French history and, you know, Napoleonic France. So this really kind of begins with the Treaty of San Ildefonso. Where Napoleon sought to reestablish an extended French maritime and colonial empire in the West Indies and the Mississippi Valley. He wanted to sort of develop this commercial block in the Caribbean basin that basically was, you know, imported important West Indian islands of Guadalupe, Martinique, Martinique, I think I said that right, and St. Dominique. Domingue. I don't know how to say that. I'm not. I speak German, not French. Uh, 
So, which in turn, that this would be linked to Louisiana. Because, well, they're at the mouth of the Mississippi, basically. So, France would export manufactured goods to the islands, whose plantations would produce sugar, molasses, rum, coffee, and cotton for France. Flour, timber, and salted meat from Louisiana would sustain the French troops stationed in the West Indies. And to go on to that a little bit more, French goods were expected to find a ready market in New Orleans, which was basically, a, you know, like the, 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 the great arch for settlers into the Mississippi Valley, you know, so to speak. It was a stepping stone. So to sort of mush out and really round out his imperial presence in the region, Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte, which historians, you got to remember, Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, existed at the same time as, as America, and that's really cool to think about. So anyway, uh, he wanted Napoleon wanted to pressure Spain into seceding the Floridas to France. Apparently, uh, anticipating the success of his plan, he ordered uh, 200 copies of a medallion bearing his profile for distribu distribution to the Native American chiefs uh, in a gesture of grassroots diplomacy. Uh, well, his plan did not succeed. So, and then we're going to get on into how this plays into the Mississippi Valley. <clears throat> so by early, uh, by 1801, late 1801, uh, this was over the course of several years now at this point, uh, President Thomas Jefferson uh, prepared to handle an impending French presence in the Mississippi Valley in his administration's first diplomatic crisis. So J Jefferson was probably uh, a very forward thinker, and he was a student of the West. The plight of the Western farmers evoked his empathy and his support. He was also a longtime friend of France, and his stint ambassador to Paris had familiarized him with French diplomacy and politics. A political veteran of the American Revolution, Thomas Jefferson was also an Anglophobe. So getting into 1802, certain events in Europe led Jefferson to reappraise and reformulate American relations with France, especially in light of her continued occupation of the Mississippi River Valley and the Port of Orleans. So war between France and Great Britain was expected. Jefferson realized that if France claimed Louisiana, Great Britain would try to capture and occupy the region as well. So in an April 18, 1802 letter to Minister Robert Livingston, Thomas Jefferson revealed, revealed that the prospect of potential war with France and the unpleasant consequence of an alliance with Great Britain completely reverts and reverses all political relations in the U.S. So our hands were basically tied. What do we do? So Jefferson and the Secretary of State, James Madison, another familiar name, a little later on in history, had hoped to fashion a foreign policy to congenial to French interest. They really kind of put, put the hammer on the nail with the slave up, uprising in St. Dominique, uh, imitating through diplomatic channels that the United States might assist France in sub subduing a l'Overture. I think I said that right. They appointed the pro-French Robert Livingston's uh, American 
minister to Paris. In May 1802, Madison instructed Livingston to negotiate for the purchase of New Orleans, and Livingston was also directed to ascertain whether the session included East Florida and West Florida, and, if so, to negotiate a price for acquiring them, or at least the right of navigation and deposit on one of the rivers feeding into the Gulf. And so just to back up here, Florida had been under the control of Spain for quite some time, and this gets back into earlier American history in the 1540s when Spain actually came to the New World and they settled somewhere, I can't I think it was Pensacola. Pensacola, Florida, they settled down there. And, well, that's one of the oldest cities in the, in the nation. Oldest settled cities. So we'll take a short break here, and then we'll get into the War of 1812. Alright, so we're going to just skip ahead to the War of 1812. You know, we're, we should talk about Lewis and Clark, what actually happened. But it's actually a little... A little on the darker side it, it's just what's depicted as opposed to what's depicted in school textbooks with all good reason we'll talk about it at a later time all right so the war of 1812 so during this time the British were doing so many things that the Americans thought insulted them they rejected Americans claim to neutrality in the global war and dismissed the former colony's national legitimacy. They stopped American ships at sea and impressed American sailors, which, if you're not familiar with impressment, uh, that's basically forced them, forcibly recruited them into the Royal Navy on the spot. And then they also armed Native American tribes that preyed on frontier settlers. And so, really, in, in Tennessee history, the natives have been pushed out at least a little bit further west, so you don't hear of it as much. But anyway, from 1783 to 1812, the British Parliament issued 12 uh, quote-unquote orders in council, which declared that any merchant ship bound for a French port was subject to search and seizure. And I'm reading this from battlefields.org. Um, full credit to who wrote this. Um, putting it in my own terms. So anyway, because the United States kind of traded, they, they traded pretty on the regular with France and the orders to put a heavy strain on Anglo-American relations. The orders of the Council in 1807 led to the ill-conceived Embargo Act, which was signed by Thomas Jefferson. And this closed all American ports to international trade and plunged the American economy into a depression. In many ways, this basically would be the start of a war for a freedom of the seas. So the United States fought a war for their independence. Now they have to fight to control the seas. And then, uh, of course, to put it into perspective, they'd have to go to war again for the same cause. But this time it would be against uh, Imperial Germany. But that's, that's for a different day. So when James Madison was elected to the presidency in 1808, he instructed Congress to prepare for war with Britain, and on June 18, 1812, buoyed the, the arrival of the Warhawk uh, representatives. The United States formally declared war for the first time in the nation's history. A lot of times this is considered to be the second war for independence. 
So the United States, um, citizens in the Northeast opposed the idea, but others were enthusiastic about the nation's quote-unquote second war uh, of independence from British oppression. So the British Parliament was already planning to repeal its trade restrictions by the time the ship carrying news of the declaration of war reached Great Britain. Almost a month and a half after war had been declared, restrictions had been repealed, but the British, after hearing the declaration, chose to wait and see how the Americans would react to the repeal. After hearing of the repeal, the Americans were still unsure of how Great Britain would react to the declaration of war. So one of the main causes for war had vanished, but the fighting began anyway. It was almost like a Cuban Missile Crisis kind of thing where they see a bunch of blips and they want to see what somebody's going to do. But luckily it was nothing. It's not really relatable. I thought it would be. Alright, so it, the poorly trained U.S. Army, which was about 6,700 men, now faced an adversary with over 240,000 soldiers spread clean across the globe. America's military fleet was large, but Britain still had one of the largest in the world. And so you have to think about it here. America was still a new nation. They just spent the equivalent of $271 million to buy some new land. And they're still kind of broke from the the revolution and they were in the depression so what you know what's going on here so the United States entered war seeking to secure commercial rights and uphold national honor the American strategy was to quickly bring Great Britain to the negotiating table on these issues by invading Canada captured Canadian territory could be used as a powerful bargaining chip against the crown so, the invasion of Canada, which began in the summer of 1812, ended in a virtual disaster. By the end of the year, American forces had been rooted at the Battle of Queenston Heights on the Niagara River, which was basically in you know modern-day Quebec. They had been turned back after advancing fewer than a dozen miles, and Detroit had been surrendered to the Canadians. Meanwhile, the British allied Native Americans continued their raids in Indiana and Illinois, massacring many settlers. So the Americans would do better at, you know, sea warfare on the open ocean. The British were able to set a pretty tight blockade along the Atlantic seaboard. American ships actually won several battles against the British. They captured a number of British trade vessels. The Americans continued to ably fight ably combat the formidable navy throughout the war. So by 1813 our luck had it started to take a better turn. The attempt to retake Detroit failed near uh, Frenchtown, Michigan and but the resorting massacre of the American prisoners at the hands of the Native Americans on the 23rd of January 1813 inspired Kentucky soldiers to enlist. Heeding the new Rally cry, remember the river raisin, quote-unquote. Continued attempts at capturing Canada resulted in only temporary footholds in York and Fort George along the Niagara front. The battles of Chautauqua, I guess that's how that's pronounced, and Chrysler's farm began, they basically prevented American forces from going into Montreal if they had, well, Montreal would be an American city. So, by the end of 1813, 
a war broke out among the Creek nations in the southeast between factions includes influenced by Tecumseh's nativism he wanted to adopt white person culture so the opposition faction who was known as the Red Sticks attacked American outpost including Fort Mims down in Alabama Andrew Jackson organized a militia over the winter of 1813 and 14 and defeated the Red Sticks at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend so through the Treaty of Fort Jackson he forced both sides of the Creek Nation even those allied to him to cede nearly 23 million acres of what would become Alabama and portions of Georgia. In 1814 the newly pro promoted uh, General Winfield Scott implemented a plan of strict drill for American troops on the Canadian border. They would advance into Upper Canada and they would score a pretty good victory in the Battle of Chippewa on July the 5th 1814 uh, but they were forced to withdraw weeks later after the Battle of Lundy's Lane near Niagara Falls. There's a lot of funny names in some of these places. So we're already nearing 20 minutes, so I'll start summing the rest of this up. So, on December 14th, the Treaty of Ghent was signed and peace was agreed upon. Word was again slow to travel, and on January 8th, 1815, Andrew Jackson engaged a British force outside of New Orleans, resulting in a studying but, yeah, but pretty pointless victory. It didn't really mean anything. And on February the 18th, the following month, the Treaty of Ghent was officially ratified by President James Madison, and the nation ended the War of 1812. With, you know, well, 15,000 Americans would die during the war, so uh, all land reverted back to its original owners. British agents stopped supporting Native American raiders, and the British trade restrictions and impressment policies already been, had already been repealed. America had fought its old master to an honorable draw, and Britain had averted a pretty big disaster in North America while defeating the French in Europe. Canada gained a proud military heritage, and the War of 1812 is somewhat paradoxical in relations between the warring factions, you know, that generally improved after the war. Native Americans were the worst losers of the war. They drew the shortest stick, and they stepped in the biggest mud pie. Many of them fought in the hopes that Great Britain would insist upon a recognized native nation in the North America as part of the peace. The British quickly abandoned the claim during peace negotiations. Additionally, without British money and weaponry, the Native Americans lost the ability to defend their lands and attack native uh, U.S. settlements, excuse me, increasing the rate of U.S. expansion. America, the war was followed by a half decade called the Era of Good Feelings. The coming of world peace spurred an economic revival and the collapse of the Federalist Party, which basically opposed the war, and removed much of the rancor from American politics. So, the America, this, this, while this was the second independence, the United States would confront its first sin, which would be slavery. And so we'll, I don't know what we'll go over next. We might get into the politics. We might go to the Civil War. But there's just a lot to talk about in American history. You can either just be straightforward about it with all the wars. You can get into the politics and then lead up to all the important events that made America it is today. Which if we'd done that, we'd be talking for quite a while. It could be, it could be its own history course. So if you made it this far, please consider 
subscribing to the old history podcast would be much appreciated but it's not required to listen all my knowledge is free to you my payment is knowing that I educated somebody somewhere so nonetheless we'll end this podcast and be sure that you go and check out the video I just uploaded